Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, your host, and this is the podcast that helps you make your move from product manager to product master. I also have other resources to help you make that move. Four levels of training explained in my Product Mastery Roadmap. You'll find out more about that at the same place where the show notes are for this episode, and that's the everydayinnovator.com slash 142. This episode focuses on platforms. It's a topic I haven't discussed yet on this podcast. An effective platform strategy is important for growing organizations and certainly mature organizations as well. And there are different perspectives on platforms. And this interview looks at it from the digital perspective, digital platforms. My guest is Larry Keeley, a strategist who has worked for over three decades to develop effective innovation methods based in science and analytics. He is president and co-founder of Dublin Incorporated, an innovation strategy firm for pioneering comprehensive innovation systems that materially improve innovation success rates and innovation return on investment. Dublin is now a unit of Deloitte Digital. Larry is also the author of the book, 10 Types of Innovation, The Discipline of Building Breakthroughs, which you'll hear us talk more about towards the end of the interview. I expect you'll enjoy the discussion. Larry, thank you for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast. It's my pleasure, Chad. I've been looking forward to it. I think it's great to have a chance to chat with you and your listeners. I'm glad that you're here to do so. This is a particularly interesting and challenging discussion only because we could go so many different places together. You have such a rich background in innovation that there's really not any topics that we couldn't pursue. And that presented some challenges in just having something focused. The one I thought we would run the track down on are platforms, what platforms mean to companies today. I'll give you my first kind of introduction to platforms. This was at a PDMA conference, the Product Development and Management Association, back in like 2004, I think. And just as part of the networking, I was talking to someone there and asked him what he does. He says, I, I help companies with platforms. I'm like, oh, well, tell me about that. He made a good case that platforms are the key to being successful with you know, innovation. And that just stuck with me. And so I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk with you more and get your perspective on platforms. So why don't we start with why they are important? Let's get your context for this. Thanks. And to your larger point, I've been an innovation scientist for 35 years. So if we didn't have uh, more than one topic to talk about, <laughs> I'd be a little embarrassed um, for both of us. Uh, but on platforms, which is a critical topic, the reason why they're important, Chad, is relatively simple. We live in a connected world. People always assume that that connected world is going to just take the normal world and give it some slightly different capabilities. But a sharper, more thoughtful, and I think more correct way to look at it is that that connected world has actually transformed the ways in which we should think about what we build, how we build it, and how to make it important. In fact, one of the most shocking things that most CEOs and even entrepreneurs have a hard time realizing is that platforms may be in our connected world much more important than the companies that own them. And that's a little bit surprising. And it's a little counterintuitive, uh, but it is uh, provably true when you start to think about it deeply enough. So we probably need a definition of platforms before we get into this too much in the context of we live in a connected world. Tell us what a platform is. How are you thinking about a platform? 
Well, I have a, two definitions of platforms, unfortunately. I have a complicated and gnarly one that I use for professionals that are building such things. Uh-huh. Um, and then I have a simple one, which I think is helpful for the rest of us. Okay, So if you're going to build one of these at home, you have to think about it as a sort of integrated offering that collectively creates this uh, holistic customer experience. Uh, ideally, you bring your humility and you only try to loosely control your platform so that others will make it more important and extend it in ways that you didn't have the wit or wisdom to imagine. Underneath the covers, Chad, you have to have some proprietary technology so you're doing stuff other people can't do. If you're very clever, your platform will leverage lots of things that suppliers create. And and if you're extremely clever, your platform will create an entirely new ecosystem for doing business inside of. And that's when it becomes amazing. So that's the complicated definition. And I'm sorry to dump that on you and your listeners, especially here at the outset of the podcast. But the simple definition, I think, should be really appealing to everybody. A truly great platform makes it easy to do hard things. So Google makes it easy for us to look up stuff in the world. Wikipedia makes it easy to sort of, you know, get a reasonably up-to-date and reasonably extensive collection of the world's knowledge. And platforms don't always have to be digital. Uh-huh. Um, uh, platforms can be really old. If you look at things like integrated boxes that we use for, you know, shipping um, containers, across the oceans and around the world and moving them from ships to trains to trucks, all with a facility and a lower cost than was ever imagined before in the history of shipping. So platforms are an old idea, but they do seem to be important in new ways when the world is connected and when we can build it more easily and with less friction. Good. So your context on platforms here is that integrated offering and, and making connections and kind of this loose control, right? Kind of becoming a standard for others, suppliers, customers, partners to participate in. Yeah. One of the mistakes people, one of the many mistakes people tend to make when they think about a platform is they think they're supposed to tightly control it. Even Steve Jobs never imagined that he would have an open platform for apps on his phone. Okay. That was kind of forced down his throat by Kleiner Perkins and a few others. Um, and, of course, it ended up making the whole phone ecosystem uh, thousands of times more valuable. Huh. So the reason for openness is because in our modern world, nobody's smart enough to anticipate all the things that all of us will want to do. And when you make it easy for people to uh, – assimilate your platform into their world, it makes the whole world more efficient and better off. Absolutely. And there's a story there that I don't know, which I'm just curious about. So this is a complete aside, but the Kleiner Perkins story and Steve Jobs, I know a connection between the App Store and Docomo, which is a telecommunication company in uh, China that created a, a similar idea, right? An App Store that probably greatly influenced um, knowing some of the people involved. But what was the Kleiner Perkins story about the influence on the App Store? And it's actually really interesting that the first generation iPhone um, debuted about the same time that Kleiner Perkins was going through a remarkable strategy shift. They had made most of their money historically on, you know, sort of dot-com offerings, things that would help to build the internet itself. And, um, 
that went through a fairly widely publicized uh, meltdown, as you know, um, uh, dot com switched to dot com post. Uh-huh. And, and Kleiner Perkins, as a result, cleverly went through a strategy shift and decided that they would only focus on three things. Uh, one thing was healthcare, another thing was greener and cleaner technologies, and the third thing was to try to change the rate of change in telephony because they had noticed that it had been much slower than the rate of change in computing sciences. So those were the three things they focused on, and they were all excited about their new iPhones. And remember that Kleiner Perkins was one of the original companies that funded Apple as a firm when when Steve and and um, uh, and um, Waz were trying to get their original funding. So they thought they were friends, and they called them up and they said, "Geez, we love your new phone. Uh, we want to create a hundred million dollar iPhone." try to create more apps for the phone. And he hung up on them and they called back two more times. Um, and was the third time they said, don't hang up this time. We're just going to tell you that we're either going to do this with you or we're going to do it to you. So do you want us to do it for the iPhone or do you want us to do it for Android? And, um, and it was a really interesting way to get Steve's attention. Uh So, yeah, very reluctantly and with no small amount from the way it was told to me, no small amount of anger um, did, in fact, agree. Interesting story. Thanks for sharing it. I, uh, I like hearing these little new insights that how things actually worked out. Yeah. So, OK, so back to platform. So this uh, integrated offering a platform where people can come and have some kind of experience that is meaningful to them. What are some examples of platforms to help make this definition a little more concrete for us? Uh, so they're they're more abundant than you could possibly imagine. The ones that people know well, at least in this country, are things like um, uh, Uber and Airbnb, uh, the iTunes Music Store, Amazon, separately the Amazon Web Services. Um, New York Times is a platform inside of the New York Times is the New York Times Puzzle increasingly shows like This American Life are actually platforms rather than individual shows and podcasts. A podcast, Chad, um, can become an integrated franchise and therefore a platform for changing things. So they're pretty abundant. Elsewhere in the world, the ones that people are really excited by are things like um, um, Tencent and all of the entire integrated ecosystem around Alibaba, the fastest growing company in China. Um, but honestly, they're pretty abundant. Google's a platform and Google has sub platforms. Um, Watson from IBM is a platform from General Electric. You get, um, uh, the, uh, the new predictive engine that they're, they're using GE, uh, predict. Um, and, Inside of every major hospital system are dozens of platforms. Um, so uh, MRI machines these days are connected platforms. Um, so I, I hope that's enough examples. I can double click. <laughs> there are several there to go through. Yeah. So one characteristic when I think of like Amazon or even This American Life, one aspect seems to be the, the opportunity for co-creation that you are participating in this platform maybe as an independent party, but you have the opportunity to co-create maybe with others that are there already part of the platform, either in Amazon's case, using it as a marketplace or in other cases, using it to create something new that didn't exist before. 
Exactly right. And you put your heart on the reason why it matters so much. If I work very hard to create a suite of capabilities that are useful for people, then the thing that's sort of exciting about that, Chad, is that as a result, uh, human beings find the use of my platform, the lowest friction, easiest pathway for them to get what they're trying to do done, right? So um, as an example, uh, universities all across this country were busy creating their own hardwired, uh, fairly deep archives of boring professors' lectures like my own, right? And and what they all learned is that it's just way easier to do that either inside of the iTunes store or inside of Blackboard, another sort of you know uh, platform specifically trying to serve universities and schools. Mm-hmm. So it's so much easier to use somebody else's cloud to do those things than it is to build your own at eye-watering expense and in a way that's going to be less efficient. And we'll have fewer learning cycles. Part of the reason why platforms are so great is that when millions of strangers start to use them, they end up learning faster and improving faster than they otherwise would. They also naturally uh, get to be bigger targets for viruses and malware and, and, and let's just call them bad actors. So that's a flip side of platform level thinking and platform level activity. But that's just, you know, part of the arms race of modern digital life. I mean, I'm thinking of some of these platform examples you gave, and some of them seem that they were purposefully created as a platform. You know, so like if I think of Uber or, or Airbnb platform marketplaces for a specific purpose. Others like Amazon, and I might I might group in FedEx too in this category where they had what they did to make their business work as a technology. They started opening up to others, right? And and they created this this capability for others to use. FedEx got good at shipping, and they opened up the, a logistics capability to help others uh, others with you know do logistics. And Amazon went from selling books to letting anyone sell anything on their platform to opening up cloud services to others, right? Sure. But if you take a look at even the examples you gave and you think about them in terms of history, uh-huh. the older examples that you gave pretty much needed to do things physically first, right? There were a lot of physical things they had to build. If I'm, if you and I started up a business today, Chad, the thing we would do is we would act with bold ambitions, let's hope, but with no resources. And so we would ask the question, how can we get this magic stuff done that we're trying to do? And we would start life in something like StackShare, looking for modular capabilities that would help us to do the things we want to do. And literally all of those are going to turn out to be little tiny platforms. You know, mm-hmm. we need to accept transactions. What if we do that with PayPal? We need right. to uh, create a digital rights management capability. Let's find some of that functionality from Apple or from uh, from Amazon. We need to create a customer relationship database. Why don't we just use all that stuff from inside Amazon Web Services? Those things are always the fastest way for us to get progress. And oh, by the way, that way, if we don't invent it ourselves, we don't, we don't take on the ridiculous modern burden of having to pay 5,000 patent trolls who are going to show up and tell us that our idea is not really ours, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they won't 
be telling the truth much of the time, but it doesn't matter. They're going to price the licensing fee for, for the suite of technologies that'll tell us we're infringing on at lower than the cost of hiring a, a lawyer. So we'll just find we have an endless stream of $10,000 payments to perfect strangers to do our idea. Mm-hmm. So this idea of just going through existing platforms turns out to be fast, cheap, smart, robust, and less likely to subject us to an endless stream of lawsuits to prevent us from doing what we're trying to do. It's just it's just the new norm. And it's the reason why the platforms themselves and this idea of extreme modularity, Chad, the notion that when I want to do something in the world, even if I have no resources, and especially if I have no resources, I need to look at the world as a set of Lego building bricks. And I need to find the ones that allow me to do what I'm trying to do in a way that the world maybe collectively has never seen before, but perhaps with pieces and parts that the world has seen for a very long time. When I teach this principle, I usually say that that this sort of exciting characteristic of 21st century innovation, Chad, is that it's much less and less about the primary invention of something new and more about the elegant integration of many things that are known. Uh And, And that's a watershed change. It is. It's not a unfamiliar characteristic of innovation, which is this notion of let, let's take something from another discipline in another domain and apply it in a new creative way, maybe combine it with, with one or more other things to another market where it provides new value. Right. And in the same way, you know, manufacturing in the, in the 1950s, 60s and 70s, everybody was always looking for the most efficient machine that would help me to do you know, uh, threading or, or lubrication or sawing or any other process. So computer numeric controlled lathes were a big deal. Uh-huh. And it's quite likely that, that DevOps and tech, uh, uh, tech stacks are the modern equivalent of that. But what you have to build with it is some total platform that does something surprising uh-huh. and valuable. And it gets amplified as users hijack it to do things with it you never imagined. So to underscore, it seems some of the key reasons why platforms are important to us as innovators, as product managers, is this aspect of, you know, I can do things faster, cheaper, more robust, stay out of legal problems, you know, use use components, building blocks that have already been proven, and just find ways to put them together that create value for our customers. You got it. Okay. Exactly Yep. The, the the role of cloud seems to be a, playing a big part in what we're discussing. Without cloud and cloud services, we wouldn't have a lot of these building blocks. Thoughts on that? Um, I think that's true and also overstated. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what is a cloud about? It's really about the ability to get greater efficiencies. And it's the exact same phenomenon that we saw in the 80s when everybody moved from their own uh, enterprise level mainframes to sort of mainframes and farms, uh-huh. um, Ross Perot's company and a few others that would help folks use the mainframe at the right level of efficiency. Uh, mainframe needed to sort of be used somewhere between 93 and 97% of its total utilization to get its economic return. And in clouds, we just do that, but on much, much, much larger scale. Uh-huh. So that we use entire server farms and we use, we use energy efficiently and we use 
security systems efficiently and were able to, you know, discern denial of service attacks and other things like that much more readily than we otherwise would if the intelligence and the systems were all sort of distributed everywhere. Uh-huh. But what is interesting is that, especially when you start your business in Amazon Web Services or equivalent, uh, 70% of all startups in the United States of America begin their life there, um, you can pick all that functionality that you need with little radio buttons and have it up and running in hours. That's quite a different phenomenon from the world just a couple of years ago what I like right. to call old days of innovation, when if you and I wanted to create a robust website and accept transactions and to build a knowledge base for our customers, we'd probably be faced with uh, seven, eight, nine months of effort and two or three million dollars worth of investment before we had a reasonable chance of accepting our first dollar in transactions. Uh-huh. You know, now you and I could do that in a matter of 10 days to three weeks, um, and we could we could have at least eight complete redesigns of our digital business, Chad, before we spend as much money as we do now to get our, as we did in the old days, rather, to get our first dollar of revenues. So that's why it matters. It just gives uh-huh. you a faster pathway to a better product at lower total economic cost. And by the way, that's the real reason why platforms pay off net net the platform and the ecosystem that it permits is dramatically less costly than the alternatives and it, and so underneath it all is good old-fashioned economic um you know sort of cost leadership yeah and also the opportunity cost because it helps you be so much faster and like you said you can start collecting money near immediately and serving customers and f- figure out how to make things really work after that, right? That this idea of if we need to, let's figure out our business case and do things manually for a while serving customers until we really know what they, what they value and what we need to be delivering. Exactly. But let me point out a subtlety there. Uh-huh. You just did a terrific job, and, and it's why you're so helpful to your um, – your podcast listeners and fans of describing the benefit to somebody building their own offering and their own business. What I'm trying to suggest to you is that there's a surprising additional dimension, which Uh is that the entire industry gets dramatically lower economic total cost. And so that makes the world more efficient. By the way, the flip side of that is interesting too. That's part of the reason why so many people are afraid about jobs. Uh We can, do so many things with so few employees that um, the productivity gains are one of the contributing factors to the worrisome pattern in this and similar westernized countries of fewer and fewer um, new jobs coming with the growth of the economy. Uh-huh. It was interesting. A few years ago, I worked with law firms quite a bit and was talking to a lot of, of CIOs and, and larger law firms. This was at a time where we had gone through the move of outsourcing a lot of our physical data centers to data center spaces, right, outside the walls of the organization uh, because of the benefits for doing so. And then starting to move to cloud services. And one of the reasons that I was being told by C- CEOs was, they were unable to find sufficiently skilled security people that they could afford and bring them on staff. But for you know much less cost of 
maintaining what they had now and hiring the highly skilled security people, they could put their services in a cloud. And as you said earlier, you, know, you, you get the benefits of the security that's already provided in such a place. The, the economics were particularly appealing in light of, at the time, a resource shortage of good security people. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, that's a perfect example of the of the sort of epiphenomenon I'm trying to describe. So there's base level phenomenon that the world is more modular. There's smart new units of analysis and, and optimization called platforms that make it easier to do hard things. Above that is the way in which it uh, helps to aggregate firms into integrated systems that are dramatically more efficient. And above that are macroeconomic effects. So it's a really big topic that I think most people don't talk about with anywhere close to the degree of nuance that it warrants. As innovators, uh, it sounds like it would behoove us to think in terms of platforms more and many benefits there. You know, we're trying to solve a problem for customers, come up with a new product for them. How do we start this? How how do we get platforms into our thinking more? Uh, And I'm quite confident you're going to say we just need to focus group this, right? No, absolutely not. <laughs> if that is your instinct, I'm going to urge you to lay down until the feeling goes away, Chad. Um, the dumbest way to start, as every good innovator knows. Uh, and, um, and I only share that because I know your position, which I agree on, on the value of focus groups. So thank you. You're welcome. Um, late in the festivities, after the prototypes exist, you can, of course, do a variety of usability testing, but that's a different issue. That's not where the great ideas come from. So um, some of your Fans may be uh, also fans of Eric Reese's work um, and uh, specifically his idea of minimum viable product, which is a very popular modern notion when people are trying to think about innovation. Um, Eric and I were the only two guys outside experts allowed to teach innovation at GE for several years. And I used to spend a lot of time on the side with him saying, dude, can we just agree to a simple wording change? Um, can we stop using the word product and start talking about minimum viable offer or mm. minimum viable platform? Right. And he said, well, I completely agree with you. That's exactly what I mean. And I say, well, then can we just stop using the word product? Because it has baggage and people make assumptions about it. And right. Mistakes about it. And Larry, let me just underscore that, especially in a context like GE, where a product takes on its own inertia and mass around it compared to something like an experiment or a pilot or an initiative, right? Exactly. So breaking this down and making it easier for your innovators to to have it be practical news they can use and ideas they can steal, it goes like this. If your product, and I'm going to use the word instead offering, demands software is going to have anything like an operating system is going to have frequent version changes is going to be connected to other things from which it depends um, uh, on and, and uses for functionality, then it already is a platform. So stop using the word product, even though that that is the fairly common misconception used in Silicon Valley. And the reason it matters is not just semantic. It will tell you that what you have to create is three things connected to one another to succeed. A good offering consists of some elegant technology that's usually a bunch of modules these days combined to do something surprising and useful. 
plus a great experience model. That is to say, you know how a customer will likely use it and you know how that user may be able to make it their own by changing something. Um, and a great business model. It has to feel fair. Uh, the simplest, fairly universal example I, I often take to explain this is is um, music streaming. And I don't really care whether somebody's a fan of Spotify or or um, or Pandora or Apple's music or or Amazon's music, but music streaming always has the same characteristic, which is that instead of having to buy the digital rights to each song and then manage those digital rights and playlists or devices or burning CDs or however else I want to access the music I've gotten the rights to, uh-huh. all I'm using is an algorithm. And, and what I do is I seed the algorithm. This is the technology part with uh, favorite genres or artists or albums that I like, even a mood that I like. And, and on the basis of the fact that there are millions of perfect strangers that I never have to meet um, using that same streaming service, Chad, the system will prepare for me all kinds of songs that oddly enough, I'm likely to like. Uh-huh. Um, that is from a basic technology, very old, invented by a couple of students at MIT called Collaborative Filtering. Same exact technology that does the, you know, readers that like this book also like this book thing. Right. Um, but on top of that, the experience is rather pleasant, especially if I can listen easily to the music in my car or an Uber or through Sono speakers in my home or some mm-hmm. other capability. That's all the experience model. And then finally, the price seems so fair. I mean, I own legally, Chad, this is evidence of my stupidity, 33,000 songs in iTunes, okay? And it's still a way better deal for me now to use two streaming services and to listen to all those songs myself. It's just amazing to me. And that's a really good example of how, um, you know, good platforms combine these specific things, a business model um, that's elegant, a a technical offering that's surprising and, and delightful and an experience model that makes it easy for you or me or, our friends to learn to do things that would otherwise be really quite hard. And that's the genetic code of a badass breakthrough. Uh-huh. It has those three properties, an elegant offering built of technologies, an elegant experience model, and an elegant business model. Uh, my own sort of longstanding research work in 10 types of innovation breaks that down even further and, and gives a rule of thumb that a breakthrough comes from five or more types of innovation, uh-huh. including at least one from each of those three classes, the offering, that is to say the technology, the experience, and the business model. And that's what makes it, for the first time in history, um, a lot easier for any entrepreneurial team to innovate effectively. It, it's just a really good way um, to have innovation give up its secrets. Right. And as genetic code, I like that description. As genetic code, you need all three or you're not going to have something that actually works. Exactly. Right. And, and, and the countervailing side of that, of course, is that very often a young entrepreneurial team will say, but wait, focus is a virtue. This is all I have time to think about. This is all I have the resources to think about. And, 
And as a result, they produce something with a much more modest ambition. And it's probably still good, but it means they're going to sell it for a few hundred thousand bucks at best instead of a billion dollars. Uh-huh. Uh, they didn't go quite far enough to make something that had the power to change the world. Very good points. Appreciate you sharing those with us. With your deep experience in innovation, uh, this is a wonderful opportunity to ask you for people that are new to product management, haven't been in it very long, new, new to an innovation role. What is something that you would share that you really wish you would have known earlier you know, in your career that would have helped put some pieces together for you? There's so many things, Chad, and, and we only have half an hour, but let me mm-hmm. give you the I've actually deconstructed the most common myths and put them into a, a sequence of uh, which ones are most prevalent. And by far, the thing that people are confused about is that they think innovation comes from creativity and they think that's the scarce resource. That is not true and it has never been true. Innovation comes from discipline, not from creativity. The second most common a fallacy is the one you and I have been already dealing with, the notion that uh, people should be focusing on finding a new product, a better mousetrap theory. Again, it's never been true, but it's an extremely popular cliche. And what they should be looking for in a connected world is um, the way to build platforms instead of products. And I could go on forever. Mm-hmm. But we don't have that much time, so I'll have to do it again another day. Well, I think this is a good transition, too, that there's a lot of wisdom contained in your book. And so why don't you tell us about that briefly and where we can find that? Uh, Ten Types of Innovation is the name of the book. You're kind to acknowledge it. It's been around since uh, 2013, um, translated now into 15 languages. I think it's the number four best-selling book in, on innovation of all time, which is interesting because there's more than 4,000 books on innovation these days. Um, and it's an attempt to describe in a very practical way what is known now about getting innovation to succeed instead of fail. So it has uh, essentially three sections. The first section breaks down innovation into how you generate robust innovations in the first place. Uh Second section talks about how you de-risk and make those innovations easier, cheaper, and, and much more reliably built. And the third section talks about, in effect, sophisticated innovations and what you can do as plays in a playbook to get your innovations to succeed instead of fail. Um, collectively, it's just uh, my best attempt to distill, um, at that time, 30 years of work in how you get innovation to work inside of firms and for any individual project that you tackle. The two points that are important to me that stand out with the 10 types of innovation. First, that it's built on research of innovations that actually happen, right? It's not you reflecting on just your experience, but it's what happens in the marketplace. And so it's grounded in research. I think that's important for listeners to know. And the second one that I appreciate is it kind of does for me what the Myers-Briggs type indicator, MBTI, does for me working with teams. I've often used that when I'm building teams. To just help us understand that we look at things differently. And the 10 types of innovation, I think, helps a, a innovation team understand that there might be different aspects we care about, right? Someone might really want to focus on the business model aspect. Yes, that's part of it. Someone else might want to really focus on the user experience aspect. Yes, that's part of it, right? Mm-hmm. And there's different, as you said, if we get five of these things of the 10 put in place properly, we likely have a success on our hands. And different people are going to be interested in getting those pieces done. Sure. And uh, just to double click on the first point that you made, 
the way we discovered 10 types of innovation was not just a couple of smart guys sitting around trying to impress each other, but rather we gathered up innovations longitudinally over, in our case, well over 200 years of time, looking explicitly for the ones that had changed industries, changed categories, or changed the world. So collectively, our set of, of um, you know, interesting innovations exceeded 1,200. Uh, then Vijay Kumar, um, a very amazing methodological uh, innovator, for my money, the single best innovation methods expert in the world right now, um, built a uh, complex model inside of a computer to be able to cross compare all 1,200 innovations. We boiled them down, kind of the way Campbell's condenses soup, and we <laughs> discovered rather than made up those 10 types of innovation. Uh-huh. Um, we've also redone that analysis every other year or so for the last uh, 22 years to see if there's anything new. So it's not only deep, it's also up to date. Right. I uh, stood the test of time. To your second point, the idea that um, these things, um, you know, allow people to innovate more readily and more effectively. That's the whole point, really. Mm-hmm. It's just designed to make it um, really interesting and easy for people to deconstruct how great innovators reliably succeed. Excellent. And as listeners know, and as you know, I love innovation quotes. I always ask for my guests to bring one and uh, share why that one's important to them. What do you have for us? I've got a favorite, which I wish was original to me. Um, uh, Richard Saul Werman, who was the original creator of the TED conference and a good friend, was the guy who popularized at least for me, many years ago, the phrase, the dumbest way to simplify something is to throw out all the hard parts. And I love that because it reinforces the idea that innovation is hard and that if you're going to do it right, you have to be willing to embrace a tremendous amount of complexity and depth and subtlety. Most people aren't willing to do that. They want it to be easy. They want it to be a bumper sticker. They want to just do a single day of brainstorming and generate hundreds of ideas. And then they think somehow or other those will sort themselves and succeed somehow. And uh, it's never been the case ever in history. So learning to uh, to get past uh, simplicity to an extremely sophisticated set of capabilities that actually work has been my life work. And um, as I like to say, Chad, um, uh, if you do it right, innovation will be the hardest work you ever loved. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's a great quote to end on. Before I do let you go, though, I would love for you to share again where people can find your book and more information about the work that you and your company do. Uh, the book is um, available on Amazon, of course, as are the 10 types of innovation tactics cards, which is a separate thing, even more valuable than the book, in my judgment, because it does for innovation what object-oriented programming did 44 years ago for computer programming. And they can also find a free version, I'm happy to say, as the 10 Types of Innovation app in the iTunes store, if they have an American address. Uh, iPad only, sadly, because it uses a lot of real estate to be able to work properly. But that's a free version of all of our research. Excellent. So 10 Types of Innovation in the App Store for iPad. Exactly right. And your business website? www.doblin.com, now part of Deloitte, part of Deloitte Digital. So, uh uh, Doblin, at least in this country, um, is uh, really about helping to invent the future, at which point we like to work with others to build that future and then ultimately with clients to run that future. So that's why we're now part of Deloitte. 
Larry, I appreciate your time. Thanks for sharing all the insights on platforms and also just how innovation kind of happens and the resources you have available for your book and iTunes, where we can find the application for iPad. And this has been a great discussion. Thanks for enlightening us. Pleasure to be with you and by extension with all of your podcast fans. Thank you so much, Chad. Thanks for listening. If we're not already connected on LinkedIn, please send me a connection request. Just search for Chad McAllister PhD and you'll find my profile. For a summary of the discussion with Larry, visit theeverydayinnovator.com slash 142. From that page, you can also download the Product Mastery Roadmap. It shows you how to go from Product Manager to Product Master. That and more is at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 142. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.